Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in. In this episode, the Society Pages' Eric Cajola speaks with David Pello, a professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Pello is a leading scholar in the field of environmental justice, and his new book, Total Liberation, features interviews with animal rights activists who raise questions about the criteria for membership in the human community. Dr. Pello explores the ethical dilemmas raised by these activists in order to better understand the relationship between social inequality and human interaction with the environment. Well, hi, David Pello, and uh, welcome to Office Hours. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, in your new book, uh, Total Liberation, you developed this concept of socio-ecological justice um, to address the ways in which humans, non-humans, and ecosystems are interconnected in hierarchies and inequalities. So how do you see and how did you start to see issues of social justice involving both humans and non-humans? Well, you know, I think one of the things I, I wanted to do was begin with uh, the question of who are we talking about as members of our community? How do we define our, our community? And I've been reading a lot in uh, you know work in the environmental humanities, work in political theory, uh, where where folks are asking that question and, and from an environmental perspective and, and suggesting very strongly that if we're going to be serious about uh, environmental politics, environmental sociology, environmental sustainability, then we have to think beyond the human, beyond just uh, those of us who just describe ourselves as homo sapiens, homo sapiens sapiens, as members of our communities, as as persons, as beings, as, as things, um, as, uh, as even objects. There, you know, there's a great field called object-oriented ontology out there, which is a, a real mouthful. But you know, the idea is that um, everything on, on planet Earth, everything in the universe is connected to everything else. I think John Muir once said that. And you know, if we're going to take environmental sustainability, social justice, environmental justice seriously, then we have to recognize that while everything is connected to everything else, some things, some beings exert more power uh, over those things than, than others, and we need to, to question that. And if we then begin to think of everything in the world, everything in the universe, human and non-human, or more than human, that is, ecosystems, animals, trees, uh, and those of us who are humans, as part of the same community, then it raises more interesting and, and more challenging questions, ethical, moral, political, intellectual questions um, about who counts, whose voice matters. Uh, and for those who haven't counted and who haven't mattered in various ways up till now, how can we challenge that? How can we change that? And for me, that is a social justice question, and it's an environmental justice question as well. And, and that's really the point, that the social and the environmental are, are really inseparable. But we have to, to recognize that there, there are always power relations uh, at work. And how did you get started in this project studying radical environmental and animal rights movements? Well, you know, I've, I've always flirted with animal rights in my own political life, my own personal life. Uh, I've been a vegetarian or vegan for, for a, a couple of decades. Um, I've dabbled in various uh, spiritual traditions where, where those practices are common. And, you know, I've, I've been active in environmental and environmental justice movements for quite some time. 
But um, the, the connection to animal rights in particular really grew out of, a, I would say, questions I was raising about the tactical and political and, and, and ideological and theoretical lens through which environmental justice movements have been operating uh, since their beginnings, at least in the United States, and the limits uh, of the environmental justice movement. And, and I became concerned that there were basically there was uh, an embrace of insider and reformist tactics and strategies that I think would only take that movement so far. And so I began to look uh, around external to myself to ask what other movements are out there that are broadly speaking ecologically oriented but are pushing the tactical and strategic envelope in ways that um, that might you know even get them labeled terrorists and I looked internally in terms of my own biography and asked you know yeah I'm a social justice scholar activist etc but but is there something in my own biography that that would lend itself to to pushing that 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 tactical and intellectual envelope and it was my history as an animal rights activist and, and as a practitioner uh, of veganism and vegetarianism and my connections to some of those movements and so I said well you know ultimately environmental justice movement and the animal rights movement the, the radical animal rights and, and radical earth liberation movements ultimately want many of the same things why can't I stage a sort of conversation that brings those ideas together and look for examples and cases uh, and discourse and politics within these movements where where people are, are bringing those ideas together so so for me it was a it was a bit of a leap uh, but it was a natural leap and took me in and I think really exciting directions that that I think allow me to have a more critical and hopeful conversation about the future of, of environmental justice scholarship and the environmental justice movement but also to have a, I think a more productive and, and hopeful uh, an inclusive uh, and understanding conversation about animal rights and, and radical uh, earth earth liberation movements, and those are those are movements I think and ideas that people don't normally um, bring together in in their minds and don't imagine uh, are together or, or that intersect uh, in in reality. And I think there are more intersections than than I think we uh, than we might think exist. Mm -hmm. And was it difficult doing research on organizations that are often underground or at least rather secretive? You know, surprisingly, no. Uh, I mean, here's the thing, though. I, you know, a number of activists sort of cautioned me and pointed out that, you know, people in these underground movements, you know, people who may be engaging in uh, illegal direct action tactics and, and, you know, arson, sabotage, or what we might call ecotage, uh, decommissioning or you know, putting out of commission uh, a bulldozer or a backhoe, you know, blowing up a building, these sorts of things. People who engage in that kind of activity, those kinds of activities are less than probably 1% of the political work that, that, that even the most hardcore activists engaged in. So, so probably 99 plus percent of, of what uh, even the most hardcore committed underground activist is doing is above ground or certainly doesn't involve uh, activities that, that, that would be deemed felon, felonies. So, so I would say for every underground activist, that same individual is probably in their life today, currently or in the past, has probably engaged in above ground legal activity. And so each of these folks I, I spoke with were able to speak at length uh, about their experience and their, their biographical connection to public uh, 
uh, above ground legal uh, activities as much as they were able to talk about the illegal work. But it was challenging in the sense that uh, there's no question that you know law enforcement is very interested in, in, in tracking these individuals, these networks and groups, and, and disrupting them. And you know you could do a Google search of you know FBI or Department of Justice reports on various groups, and the ones that are available that you know that are heavily redacted, of course, reveal very clearly that um, you know the the Department of Justice is very much interested in in putting an end. To, to these movements um, and for various reasons, but primarily, at least officially, because you know, oftentimes people are engaged in criminal activities, as I've as I've discussed. Um, and you know, I had a situation where law enforcement was interested in talking to a collaborator of mine who was believed to have uh, information about various uh, crimes and actions that these groups have committed, and uh, and that person ultimately you know had spent five months in, in prison for that. Um, I was able to to avoid jail or prison time, but but it was it was quite stressful, and I must say that a part of me you know was you know uh, was was found that it it appealing. I thought it was very important at, at some point that I was doing research on people that the government that the state felt were somehow a serious threat, and I have to say that that's the first time I really felt like that. And I think that then goes back to my earlier critique of the environmental justice movement. At least in the United States, primarily we find this movement ultimately is interested in getting the courts to pass favorable decisions, getting state houses uh, to pass favorable laws, legislative uh, enactments, uh, and getting the federal government to recognize and, and act on, on the, uh, the, the problem of environmental injustice. And I think that's all fine, but that's also very limited and it requires, as much as it uh, may involve and entail uh, public protest, disruptive activity, it requires people uh, to, to engage in insider work. It requires people to seek out an audience with senators, congresspersons, the White House, um, with elected officials, with media. And so it requires a sort of respectability that a radical earth and animal liberation movement uh, is not going to have. And so um, it's, you know, and I'm quite certain the environmental justice movement is under surveillance, uh, is, is, you know, has the Department of Justice checking in on them, et cetera. But it's much easier to do that when people are agreeing to have meetings with uh, legislators, people in, in houses uh, of, of power, the formal corridors of power. And so, um, so the difficulties that I had doing this research, I think, reflect uh, the many ways in which uh, radical earth and animal uh, and, and animal rights movements are perceived to, to be perhaps more of a threat than, than other movements, whether or not that's actually true. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, the title of your book, Total Liberation, refers to what you describe as the sort of framing and the philosophy of these radical environmental and animal rights movements. So could you explain a little bit about what this framework entails? Yeah, and and I, and I want I want to be clear that you know I, I didn't develop this idea. I mean, to, total liberation is is something is a term that that has been used actually by by multiple movements. Um, I've often been reminded that uh, people in the Black Panther Party have used the term total liberation, and I imagine people prior uh, to the 1960s and 70s revolutionary movements were using that term. But it's a term that that many earth and animal liberation activists today do use. And from the the documents that I examined uh, for for this project, from the interviews I did, uh, the hundred plus interviews and the observations I did in the field work, 
uh, I distilled it into four four pillars or four components. And the first is this what I call an ethic of of social justice and anti-oppression that is inclusive of human beings, animals, uh, and ecosystems. The second and the third are anarchist politics and anti-capitalist politics. And the fourth. Uh, is an embrace of direct action tactics and strategies. So, so you put all that together, and this is you know a a, a strategy, a, a program, a philosophy that says we need to address and confront hierarchy and unfreedom in any and all forms wherever we find it within the human community and outside of the human community, and that that is part of the root of this problem, power in, uh, inequalities and, and uneven nature and the uneven terrain of power across and within species. Uh, and then we need to have a, a, a philosophical approach to the dominant institutions and cultures of, of organizing uh, governance uh, and, and commerce and the production of meaning and symbols and, our, and, and the structuring of our lives, human and otherwise, and that would be the state and, and, and the market system. And then fourth and finally, direct action. Uh, by any, any means necessary, mm -hmm. these, these folks have said we need to then act uh, on on the previous three pillars and and those those three pillars that have added up to a rather uh, radical analysis and suggesting various forms of transformation and so the fourth pillar direct action tries to bring that together and say let's let's move let's do something so and why do you think these types of um, groups and movements that use direct action tactics and have anarchist and anti-capitalist ideas have particularly emerged in maybe the past 20 or 30 years and and what did you kind of find motivated activists and motivated people to become involved yeah no it's a great question and i'm i'm sure i've got only a partial answer and i hope other other uh, activists and scholars and observers will will fill in the blanks i think there are a whole host of reasons in the book i focus on three one is i think you know perhaps the most obvious um, but is never actually obvious, and that is the, uh, the 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 crisis itself, or crises plural, the socio-ecological crises of uh, of pollution, of habitat destruction, of uh, ocean acidification, of climate change or climate disruption, um, the exploitation, the consumption and slaughter of billions of non-human animals, the deforestation, you name it. But it's a social crisis as well because at every one of those those issues I just mentioned, we have human beings whose lives are being negatively affected, uh, whether it's through the workplace hazards, whether it's through unhealthy consumption of, of various food stuffs, food items, and, and the lack of choice uh, in terms of what we can, we can consume, whether it's uh, our entire civilizations, particularly for indigenous folks, uh, being wiped off the face of this earth, forested areas, swaths of, of the earth being destroyed, people being displaced, forced migration, war, genocide, um, culturicide that is the destruction of people's cultures and ling and language and ways of life um, all of these things are happening and, and are inseparable from what we normally think of as ecological crises so I think of it as a socio-ecological crisis and so that's the first thing these activists said we need to respond to that the second uh, I talk about in the book is the uh, the disgust the the frustration and exasperation that many of these radical movement activists have with what we call mainstream movement uh, approaches and again that gets back to my critique of, of, of environmental and environmental justice movements that largely what we see with with those movements is what we would call an insider strategy reformist uh, approaches not only in terms of tactics but in terms of the imagination what future can we imagine what is 
is the vision uh, of a future planet Earth, humans and non-humans. Um, and, and that's been rather limited. And look at it. L look at the results. I mean, empirically, scientifically, um, we continue to lose ground. We have had very few successes. The socio-ecological crises continue. We are, in some, by some measures, teetering on the brink uh, of collapse, of extinction. Uh, the sixth mass extinction is currently underway in this, this epoch we call the Anthropocene, the age of human beings. Uh, as the dominant species. And so I think, you know, whether, whether you think it's fair or not, I think it's safe to say that the tactics and the strategies that the mainstream movements have been foisting upon us and have been using simply haven't worked. We are still in a crisis and very little progress has been made. So something new needs to happen. So that's the second point. Third and finally, in terms of why these movements have emerged, and this I found in some ways most interesting and, and most surprising, is these movements are reaching back in, into history and being uh, motivated by, being inspired by, and in, in some cases guided by, and even collaborating with movements of the, of the past. And I would say the movements of the 19th and 20th century, the anarchist movements, feminist movements, women's movements, the Luddite movements, the Irish Republican Army movement, the anti-apartheid movement from the armed resistance particularly uh, into the, the, uh, the, the later era, which I would call more of a civil rights era, the civil rights movement in the United States, the labor movement, um, and, and of course Black Panther and Black Liberation Army movements, the American Indian movement, uh, and Puerto Rican independence movements. All of these movements and others have really inspired many of these activists in animal rights and environmental uh, liberation communities. And many, many activists, particularly from the American Indian movement, the Puerto Rican Liberation and Independence Movement, and Black Panther and Black Liberation Army movement, still around today, are actually collaborating with and guiding some of these, these, these younger activists in, in animal rights and earth liberation movements. So I found that really surprising. And I think that, for me, above all, uh, is one of the reasons why I think the state, why the government is very concerned uh, with the development of these movements. Yeah, could you maybe elaborate mm -hmm. a bit more on that last point there? Mm -hmm. So you discuss, you know, how the government has cracked down on these groups through surveillance, prosecution, lengthy prison sentences. So, so why do you think, um, you know, freeing minks from fur farms or damaging animal testing laboratories has sparked such immense repression from the government? Yeah, I think for, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, I think it's certainly the actions that, that, that people are taking. And I, I think that's certainly the, the first level when, when somebody goes out and, as you said, frees minks from a fur farm uh, as the, the Gordon Shumway Brigade, as they called themselves, a group of animal liberationists did in uh, 2011 in Oregon. Um, you know, Peter Young, who spent a couple of years in prison, he was an Animal Liberation Front activist, freed thousands uh, of animals from, from fur farms in the Midwest. Uh, we have many, just enormous number of volume of examples of that kind of work. In 2004, I believe it was, the University of Iowa, there was a, an Animal Liberation Front raid there where more than 400 animals were freed and something like $500,000 worth of damage was done vandalism to the laboratories, the research laboratories. That, of course, those kinds of actions are not only legally, um, you know, a violation of the law, uh, but I think it's safe to say that 
they also instill in, in some people deep concerns and fears of, of safety. And this is something that the federal government is concerned about as well and has allowed them to define many of these actions as terrorism because it is said to install or instill a, a reasonable fear uh, of, of even bodily harm. You know, it's like, well, if you're willing to burn down this building, if you're willing to engage in sabotage, arson, how do I know you're going to stop there and not hurt anyone? It should be stated, though, that in the United States, the animal liberation movement uh, has thus far not killed a single human being. And so this is very challenging for many people who, when we think of the, the word terrorism, we think of not only psychological terror, but people like al-Qaeda or, or ISIS and other groups uh, who actually have no qualms about taking human life. But uh, earth liberation and animal liberation movements in this country haven't done that at all. But what they have done is not only engaged in, in theft, uh, but property damage, which is really at the core of not only the, the problematic actions they're taking, but the ideas, the ideology, the philosophy that says we as activists, uh, and I'm saying not me, but they, we as activists do not agree that property is sacred or sacrosanct. We do not agree that property destruction is not only terrorism, but not even a form of violence. And this is very, uh, this is a direct challenge to, I think, a U.S. culture, a capitalist culture, not, a, not just a legal framework, but a culture that says, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that original triad, I believe, was life, liberty, and the pursuit of property from John Locke. And so there is this idea that property is central to capitalist free market uh, or market system culture, and it's enshrined in the law. And we see that then if the U.S. government has said that these movements, animal and earth liberation movements, are the single greatest domestic terrorist threat in the United States, yet they haven't killed a single human being, then one cannot reach any conclusion other than the reason why these folks are such a threat is because they are engaging in property damage and challenging, I think, uh, a core value uh, of this country um, and a core sort of pillar of capitalism. But uh, I did mention earlier that these, these movements are collaborating with folks from Black Panther Party, Puerto Rican Independence, Black Liberation Army movements. And I think that that, without a doubt, is another really big reason why the federal government is very concerned. These, of course, are, are movements that we tend to associate with the past, although many activists continue to work in those traditions. And those were movements that, of course, were occasioned by massive uh, government repression, the F F FBI's counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, which resulted in many, many people uh, being infiltrated, being surveilled, being assassinated uh, and being in prison, many of whom are in prison to this day, decades after the fact. And I think it's, uh, it, it's it, I have to say that as much as the earth and animal liberation movements have experienced a lot of repression, thus far it hasn't really compared to what we've seen with uh, the movements of, say, black freedom struggles and the Puerto Rican independence movement and the American Indian movement. And so I think there's a real sense in which as much as you know, uh, I think that what these activists are engaging is a form of racial politics, not just radical politics, because they are challenging the, the supremacy, not only uh, of white supremacy, but the supremacy of property, which is always connected to whiteness, uh, and the supremacy of human beings. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I argue that that privilege can be conditional when you engage in a kind of politics that really challenges the core of, of what this country stands for, and that is uh, hierarchy above all property above all and capitalism and state power. And so how have activists navigated and responded to this government action 
And how have these state efforts um, potentially dampened or not um, dampened the movements? Mm. I would say there are few activists in these movements who would disagree with the following statement, that government repression has, as much as there's been muddling and stumbles and pitfalls in terms of what the Department of Justice has done, that government repression has succeeded in creating a chilling effect uh, on, on this movement. Um, and so that, that is a fact. Now, as much as that is true, there are still, um, across these movements, the Earth and Animal Liberation movements, still many people engaging in actions uh, on a daily, weekly basis uh, and who haven't been cowed by that. Um, on the other hand, there are, you know, I would say maybe a hybrid response we've seen in many cases like uh, Sarah Jane Bloom, Sarah Jane Blum, who is a Twin Cities uh, activist here in, in, in Minnesota, who is suing the government, suing Eric Holder, the attorney general, for creating uh, an unconstitutional uh, chilling effect on free speech, on dissent, on activism with the passage uh, in 2006 of the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which makes it a federal crime of terrorism uh, to engage in, essentially, you could engage in a boycott that that reduces um, a profit at a company of ten thousand dollars or more that is a threshold that if you reach that then you could be defined as, as an animal rights or eco terrorist um, and the kind of enterprise that that has to be directed at is so broad and so vague as as to constitute uh, or and to connect to virtually any business in this society the the law the animal enterprise terrorism act says that it has to be a, uh, an enterprise that uses animal products well what enterprise do you know of that in the of this in this country doesn't use animal products or doesn't do business with another business that uses animal products and so so this is a, a a law that I think is patently unconstitutional, that has created a chilling effect. Sarah Jane Bloom, uh, Blum has decided to sue the government because she's, she has been an animal liberation activist for many years and is claiming that her rights are being affected, her ability to engage in free speech and dissent uh, are being chilled, are being curtailed by this law. And so she has scaled back her activism in one sense, but in another sense, she's scaled it up by, by going after the federal government uh, in a court of law and, and suing them. So that's one, some, some of many ways uh, these activists have responded. Another uh, way that activists have responded, uh, and we see this in, in other radical movements, uh, never, you, you virtually never see this in mainstream movements because there's no need, um, but the, the development of what we call a security culture. And the idea is how do we, whether we are engaging in illegal activities or not, how do we uh, make sure that our movement can continue into the future? How do we practice our, our, our work? How do we do engage in our activism in a way that will provide us with the maximum level of safety and security uh, and, and, and checks and balances and, and buffers against what the federal and other, other government uh, agencies might be uh, engaging in, in terms of surveillance, in terms of infiltration, in terms of harassment, imprisonment, down the line. How do we ensure the future of this movement, in particular when many of us are in prison? And how can we support people who are in prison? And how can we keep people who aren't in prison out of prison and how can we not make sure that we divert 
uh, an inordinate amount of our resources toward fighting the prison industrial complex and toward doing the work that needs to be gotten, that needs to be done in terms of fomenting social change by any means necessary. And so, so that's another response that development of security culture. And above all, um, it's about movement building, maybe not in the sense of a building a mass movement, but connecting uh, to everyday people who may not be uh, you know, a part of this movement, recruiting people to this movement, and building solidarity with other movements, and not saying that, oh, you know, civil rights movement or women's movements or LGBTQ movements have to believe in and, and work for earth justice and animal justice, et cetera, necessarily, but if we're going to be allies with other movements and build solidarity with movements, then let's, let's find common cause. Let's build common cause and work on a number of issues. And so I think that's another way that movements, uh, these movements have responded um, to, to build up strength and to create what, what is truly a multi-issue, uh, multi-sectoral, if you will, um, uh, political formation. Mm -hmm. And so kind of wrapping up here, um, what can the particular movements that you study um, contribute to understanding contemporary social movements and inequality more broadly, and in what ways can studying non-humans be incorporated into f future areas of research? Yeah, I think for me the bottom line uh, for, for this book, Total Liberation, and, and really for the takeaway message for me for understanding why I think these movements are sociologically significant and important is just as you said, is that they are devising new ways or maybe revising older ways uh, of thinking through uh, the problem of, of hierarchy, the problem of inequality, the problem of, of uneven power relations, its use and abuse of power in our society. And understanding, you know, we, we talk about intersectionality in, in various fields in academia, the ways in which race and gender and class and sexuality or citizenship or age or ability, these things, the way these things intersect to really create a, a composite and comprehensive being that every one of us is raced, every one of us is classed, every one of us is marked by gender etc. But these movements have gone a step beyond that and said, you know, we need to also think about the ways in which species um, should be added to the mix. And not just added to the mix in the sense of, oh, now it's going to be race, class, gender, sexuality, citizenship, age, species, but also rethinking the ways in which we think about the non-human, any animals out there, etc., how that shapes our definition and our lived experience of what we mean by race, what we mean by class, how we live gender and sexuality, because those things assume uh, a, a human subject that is necessarily defined over and against an opposite uh, non-human subject. So if we're going to take intersectionality seriously, then we have to move beyond the human to get back to understanding the human more deeply. Um, so that's one way. And I would say in terms of uh, taking the idea of non-humans a step further as a sociologist, I, I've noticed that within my field, very little work on non-humans has been done in terms of thinking about, going back to the very first question and answer, thinking about how non-human animals and species could be theorized, could be thought of as part of our community, as part of the polity, uh, part of our, our systems of governance even. Um, not just that they are affected by human activities or affected by ecological activities, but 
that they are members of our communities and, and should have a say, should have uh, recognition uh, and agency, if you will, in, in how we move forward. And so in the book, I, I write about the ways in which these earth and animal liberation activists are thinking through that and thinking of non-humans in a number of ways, non-human as um, a force that really calls to activists to defend, say, uh, oceans or forests or to free animals from laboratories so that those non-human entities are actually participating or collaborating in a sense in that political movement, but also thinking about the non-human as even perpetrating some uh, ecologically destructive activities as bulldozers and backhoes do every day and as the buildings in which we find laboratories that are engaged in sometimes uh, horrifically abusive experimentation on non-humans. So those things, those non-human things, these objects out there, some of which, many of which humans themselves have built, can also be participating and collaborating in uh, deeply harmful and violent uh, be behavior, and that those non-human objects uh, then become targets of this movement. Um, and so, uh, and then of course a third way is that non-humans not only collaborate, but even in some ways independent of activists will engage in political activities themselves and there are some of my favorite reading and, and this can be uh, disturbing for some folks and, and cynical for others or exciting for others still is uh, in, in some some of the journals and magazines and zines in these movements say the Earth First Journal or No Compromise and Bite Back Magazine will see stories about say uh, a lion uh, at the zoo who has just got annoyed and pissed off at a human being who was taunting them and who will of course reach out and take a swipe at them, often injuring if not killing them. Uh, there's a, a famous postcard that Earth First sends out to, to many people uh, who, are, who are subscribers or me members who, uh, of, I think it's of, of a redwood tree that fell on an SUV Jeep. And it's sort of, the idea is nature is biting back, nature is fighting back. And, you know, this may be anthropomorphic in some ways, us projecting human wishes and desires on onto otherwise random occurrences in in, in non-human nature spheres but 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 I don't think so uh, exclusively because we'll have other examples from South Africa, for example, where uh, this famous instance where a road was being cut into a forested area uh, where baboons and other primate species were living. And these baboons and other primates were literally engaging in, in, in civil and uncivil disobedience, um, literally trying to stop cars, engaging in roadblock behavior to try to stop further incursions in, into this forest. So, uh, so the examples of sort of nature fighting back, non-human nature biting back, uh, are legion and, and infinite, and of course speak to uh, perhaps problematic fantasies on the part uh, of many activists and, and scholars. But, but those are three of the many ways in which uh, uh, these, these non-human forces, I think, engage in a, in a kind of real politics. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, David Pello, thank you for stopping by Office Hours. Thank you so much, Erica. It's been a pleasure.